open our eyes, soften our hearts. God, teach us this morning. We long to be shaped more and more to the image of Christ. I want to pray if there's anything that I have prepared to say, anything that will come out of my mouth that is not true to your word, that is not uh, faithful um, to who you are, God, that those words would fall to the ground and be forgotten, that your truth uh, would go forth. And God, that you would be building your church as you promised, that you'd be at work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you're uh, a little smarter than me, um, but I had to read through this section about 15 times um, before I kind of finally figured out what's, what's going on here, trying to stumble through these names and figure out who these people are and where they're from. Um, point one, verses 1 to 12, is, is this, let go of the world. Let go of the world. And you're just going to have to trust me for a few minutes uh, as we dig through this, and I promise that'll, that'll make sense when we come to the end. Uh, I hope it will. Um, so there are these kings, and they, they have these weird names, and they're from weird places, and they're fighting each other, and who cares, right? Like, let's be honest, you're reading this in your morning devotions, and all of a sudden, you, you've flipped a couple pages, and you have no idea what you've just read. Um, this is difficult, um, but this is God's word. There is good stuff here for us. This is here on purpose. God doesn't waste space in his Bible. And, and so we just need to dig in and slow down a little bit, wrestle with it. Um, so the first, um, let's figure out who the teams are. Um, even though there are these kind of lists of kings, there's whole swack of names through here. Um, there really are just kind of two teams that matter. Um, first, in, in the blue corner, um, there is Cheddar Laomer. Um, and there are three other kings that are with him. There's Amraphel and Arioch and Tidal. Um, that's all in verse 1. These guys are together. Chedorlaomer seems to be their leader. Um, they're all from the same general area, we're fairly sure. Notice Amraphel, king of Shinar. Well, we know where that is. That's the, the plain of Shinar, right? Where the, the men uh, after Noah traveled east to Shinar, that's where they built uh, the Tower of Babel. Uh, I, I like to get stuff on maps, and that helps me, so maybe that will help you. So let's, let's do that. Let's zoom all the way out and get uh, our context, because I'll be honest, I grew up in the church. And I didn't have a clear sense of this. This is our world, the world we live in. We're not talking about Bible fairyland. Uh, under the magnifying glass, that's the Middle East. That's the area we're talking about, top of Africa, east of Europe. Um, we zoom in a little further. Um, we see the Middle East. Um, under the orange there is Israel, a um, tiny nation tucked away in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and the big blue area, that is Mesopotamia. That's the area we refer to as, as Mesopotamia. And, uh, and then the yellow uh, is the general area of the plain of Shinar, um, over by Kuwait, between Kuwait, Kuwait and Iraq. So we're off in the, in the, in the desert there. Um, so that's, uh, there, there's these three other kings from Elisar, from Elam, and from Goyim. Um, there's all kinds of intelligent conversation breaking down the etymology of the different names and where they're probably from, and, and maybe. Um, we're not sure. Mesopotamia area um, is, is, is what we can kind of land on. Um, but these four kings are, are Team Cheddar Laomer. They're the blue team up in Mesopotamia. And, uh, and then in verse 2, um, we come down... Uh, and, and they make 
war. They're coming down toward Israel, and they make war against Bera, the king of Sodom, and Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, and Shiab, the king of Adma, Shember, the king of Zebuim, uh, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And so um, these kings, generally speaking, next slide, are down in the red area. So they are just to the east and a little bit south of Israel, along the other side of the Dead Sea, along the Jordan River. Um, this is uh, the area that Lot went into. Um, so the blue team is coming down to attack the red team. Cheddar Laomer and his guys are coming down against the king of Sodom and his guys. Uh, and they meet to fight in the Valley of Siddim. And the Valley of Siddim is the yellow star. Uh, it's kind of like you can't see very well under there. Um, it's just kind of off the top of uh, the Dead Sea um, and uh, in, the, in the Jordan Valley there, fairly close to Jerusalem. Um, so that's the, that's the battle that's going on. Verse 4 then backs up, and it tells us why they're fighting. So here are these kings that are fighting. Why? Well, they're fighting because over the last 12 years, the red team has been serving the blue team. They have been under their thumb, probably paying a substantial amount of their wealth every year in tribute. Um, and uh, on the 13th year, they decided enough's enough. We're done with this. We don't like this game. We're done with these bullies. Um, we're not going to send them our money. They're not getting anything else from us. And so verse 5, uh, in the 14th year, the red team, Chedorlaomer and his thugs, they didn't like this. And so they went on a rampage, and they came down to attack uh, the red team. They headed south, um, down toward, toward Israel, toward the, the Dead Sea there. Uh, and on the way, they defeat all these other kings. So that's the list from, from verses 5, 6, and 7 of these other kings that they defeated on their campaign. Um, you need to understand something here a little bit. On, on one hand, these may not be kings and armies as you think about them, right? A king in that day uh, is not king of a nation as we think about it. This is not like you think of the, the Lord of the Rings and the sprawling valley filled with thousands of troops. Um, they're kings over cities, and even their cities are maybe more like big towns. Thousands of people, um, but, but not nations. And so their armies are maybe a little smaller than we might conceive of them. Um, on the other hand, these guys are no chumps. The, these guys are impressive. Um, they are rocking down and taking out city after city and king after king. The, this blue team is, uh, is a powerful bunch. And so they're nothing to sneeze at. These are some tough guys. They, they really are the, the playground bully. Um, they are taking everyone's lunch money and no one is able to stand up to them, at least not successfully. And so it's not too surprising that, that though the, the, the red team led by Sodom um, as a group of five armies and the blue team is only four armies, um, Cheddar Laomer and his guys win. Um, and they send Sodom, uh, the king of Sodom and, and those five armies running. They're fleeing away um, so frantically that as they're running, um, they're running through this valley that apparently had tar pits in it, and they're falling into the tar pits, and then some are running up into the hills. They've scattered. And so the blue team, Cheddar Laomer, they, they got what they came for. They looted Sodom and Gomorrah. They took all of their possessions, cleaned out the houses, the jewelry boxes, uh, all of the provisions, the, all the, the sacks of grain, everything they had grown, the plan to, to live on until the next harvest. 
Uh, and then verse 12, they also took Lot, son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions. So hopefully a little bit better picture of kind of what's going on here. Um, but really it's verse 12 that matters for us. Um, this is where it lands. This is where it hits home. Um, as I said, back in, in chapter th- uh, 13, Lot chose to live in the Jordan Valley. He went there because it looked fertile. It looked green. Even though the, the people there were evil, he craved the security and the stability that this kind of well-watered, established area offered. Chapter 14, verse 12, we see Lot uh, is dwelling uh, in Sodom. Um, chapter 13 we saw that he went to live near the cities. He took his tent and, and settled near the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. By chapter 14, he's dwelling in them. He's moved in. He's got comfortable. He's, he's made this his home. This is the completion then uh, of chapter 13 and the decisions that he made there. Um, he was willing to make his home amongst the sinners. His He's hoping in the things that they're hoping, and he's trusting in the things that they're trusting in. This is his security. And in chapter 14, we've got to stop and ask the question, how's that going for you? How's that working out? You wanted the things of the world. You wanted what they had. Uh, You made your bed, and now you've got it. You like it? The world offers security, stability, satisfaction pleasure, joy. That's what I'm looking for when I'm putting my hope into an election. I want the world to be a better place. I want a world where I am a little more comfortable and safe and secure and happy, and I am hoping that politics will get me there. That's what the drug addict is looking for in his drugs. That's what the unmarried couple is looking for in their fornication. That's what the workaholic dad is looking for in his extra hours of work. That's the sales pitch of the world. And first, like Lot, it catches our eye. We see it as a distance. That makes sense. This is going to work. There's some good there that I can, that I can get. And if we're not careful, we, we begin to move in. We begin to settle. We begin to make our home there. But these promises of the world, they don't deliver. It doesn't last. It doesn't go well. Just like Lot's partnership with the world, just like Eve reaching out to take the fruit, same thing. The result uh, is never true lasting peace and joy, but pain and suffering. It's the curse of sin that, that catches up. Church, we are so easily sucked in, aren't we? We are so easily enticed by the things in this world. We need to be reminded regularly. I need to be reminded regularly. Let it go. Because it doesn't deliver. It never ends well. It doesn't give what we hope. We need to learn to to trust the Lord as, as Abram did to let go of this world and its lying promises. To learn to let go of this world. Secondly, then, we need to lean into the fight. We need to lean into the fight. So let go of the world and then lean into the fight. It's verses 13 to 16. Read it for us. 
than one who had escaped after this battle and Lot and uh, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, these other cities are all taken captive. One who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 men, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces up against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and, all, uh, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram gets wind that, that Lot has been taken and, and he's not going to stand for it. He's not going to let this happen. Now the, the marauders are making their way through the promised land um, and, and they're threatening there as well. Um, Abram is still where we left him. He's, he's living in his tent um, by the oaks of Mamre. And, and, and he's still considered a foreigner there, obviously. Um, that's evidenced by the fact that, that he's called Abram the Hebrew. Um, by the way, this is the first time the word Hebrew is used uh, in the Bible, and uh, its roots are not clear. Probably kind of a descendant of Eber we saw earlier. It also seems to have the meaning of traveler, wanderer, outsider. And, and, uh, and again, just the, the language used here, um, you wouldn't use of someone who was local, right? No one would say of me, oh, that's John the Albertan. You'd be like, well, yeah. Um, but when, when we go visit my family uh, in Wisconsin, they frequently say, oh, you've got to come meet the Canadians, and then they laugh at us for the things that we say. Um, these are the Canadian cousins. Um, and so that's what's going on here. It's, it's Abram the Hebrew. That's this description. Um, and so Abram heard of, of, of this, and he, and he rallies his men, 318 trained men from his household. Now, Abram has no children yet. These aren't his children. They're from his, his household, um, this group of people around him. Um, this is his army. And he also calls... Um, some allies from the area. And so though he's living outside of uh, Mamre, um, those are his trees that he's living by, Mamre's trees, and, and he's made friends there and allies as well as his two brothers, Eshcol and Anner. And, and so these guys gather together and they, they catch up to Chedorlaomer, the blue team, this band of thugs, uh, on the far northern edge of Canaan, right at the, the top of the promised land. They're, they're heading back to Mesopotamia, and, uh, and Abram and his guys run them down. And, and it says that Abram divided his men, and in the night, while the other armies presumably are sleeping, um, they came from two sides and, and took them out. And they rescue Lot and his family. And, and they chase off Chedorlaomer and his men uh, up, and they, they chase them up as far as Damascus. That's further north and, and further east. And, uh, and they recover all that had been stolen, the possessions, the people. Um, now, what do we do with this? What do we take from this? As we look at these, these stories, um, we have to be careful as we draw theological points. We don't want to kind of over-spiritualize this as we look at biblical narratives, especially as we're crossing from Old Testament to New Testament. How do we, how do we apply something like this? Well, it is interesting. We, we see how God works. We see God's faithfulness. We see how God deals with his people and their enemies, and God is unchanging. And so, as we look through the Old Testament, actually we see similar stories to this happening 
a few different times. Maybe they've already come to your mind. Um, 2 Samuel 30, David. He's not yet king, but he's leading an army. He's been anointed as king, kind of in secret. He's waiting for for Saul. And, And while he's away on a raid, the Amalekites come to his home. And they took away his wives, his children, um, and the, the wives and children of, the, of his men. So David grabs a group of, of 600 men, and they start to run. They take off after these Amalekites. Um, they come to a river, and they're exhausted, and 200 of the men are too tired to cross the river. Um, so 400 carry on exhausted. Not all that different from 300, 318. Um, they catch up to the Amalekites. They attack them by night. They take back their possessions, their people. Another similar story is the story of Gideon. Judges 7. The, the Midianites, were, Midianites are oppressing Israel. They're coming in and, and raids after the harvest and taking away their, their uh, provisions and their crops, leaving them desolate. Gideon this time, he starts with a pretty good-sized army. He's got, he's got 32,000 men, but, but the Lord whittles it down more and more and more until 300 remain. What does Gideon do? He divides his men. They attack by night. They defeat the Midianite army. They get their stuff back. They get their freedom. Living in this world, God's people are constantly under attack. This is not our home. We are sojourners here. We don't belong. And we have an enemy, an enemy who would seek to to destroy us. There's some obvious and significant differences. So we move from Old Covenant to New Covenant, the the people of God are no longer represented by a a physical nation with physical nation enemies, but the spiritual people taken out from every nation, and so our enemies are not physical enemies, but spiritual. Um, I always get frustrated when I say stuff like that, because I feel like we say, well, it's not physical, it's spiritual. We think that's a downgrade, that's an upgrade, right? Spiritual is more significant than physical. And so the people of God look a little different. Our enemies look a little different in this way. And, and, and so we have spiritual enemies. And, and yes, that includes Satan, his demons. That's one aspect of it. Um, but what does Satan do? He, he lies, he deceives, he tempts us by our desires to, just like he did in the garden with Eve, to turn away from the Lord and to trust in the things of this world to leave God, and to go our own way. So our battle is against the the deceitfulness of sin. That's our our significant enemy. So 1 Peter 2.11 uses this language, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. And I find that so helpful to realize yeah, these passions, these desires that I have in me, they are at war against my soul. That's my enemy. Our ultimate enemy is sin. And the enemy of our own passions, our own desires that would, that would tempt us to turn away from God and to, to find our joy, our satisfaction, our hope in, in the things of this world. And just like Cheddar Laomer and the Amalekites and the Midianites fought against Israel, our sin would seek to attack us, to enslave us, to deprive us from enjoying the good gifts of God and, and, his, and his blessing. And there's this dual reality in, in each of those Old Testament stories as we watch this play out. 
It took great bravery for Abram to take 318 men and pursue uh, the armies of, of Chedorlaomer and his men that have just ravaged the entire surrounding area. They're like, we're going after them. They're not coming for us, but we're going after them. That took guts. It took courage and hard work for, for David to, to pursue the Amalekites, to run after them, to, to engage them in battle. It took incredible faith, perseverance for, for Gideon with 300 men to go up against the, the hosts of Midian. It didn't happen um, without their engagement, their courage, bravery, their hard work, their discipline. They had to lean into the fight. There was a battle to be fought. They had to have courage and faith and obedience. They had to walk it out. And yet, in each case, God makes it so obvious that it's he who wins the victory. It's he who gives this unbelievable victory in every situation. And so we need to lean into the fight. We need to be diligent and, and courageous, vicious in battle against our sin. Letting go of the world, ready to fight against the passions of our flesh. Fight against our temptation, fight against our sin, fight against our, our own hearts as they deceive us and betray us. Turning from this world and trusting in Christ. It, it won't be easy, right? It, it will not be a walk in the park. We are called into war against sin. That's why Paul says to Timothy, First uh, Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It'll be a fight. In the Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put them to death. You're at war, you're at battle. But the good news is, just like the Lord did for for Abram and for David and for Gideon. As we lean into that fight, as we battle with, with courage and, and persistence and determination against the sin in our hearts and temptations of this world, we do so with a hope and a confidence that it's the Lord who gives the victory. That, that he takes these lopsided battles and he gives victory. Like David said going up against Goliath, 1 Samuel 17, 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. God will do it. I'm outnumbered and it's going to take courage and, and boldness for me to stand up and go to battle, but, but God's going to give the victory. He'll do it. Say with Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you holy, win the battle against sin. May he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He'll do it. He's faithful. He will surely do it. He'll win the victory. He'll win the battle. God is at work. Not only in our salvation from the, the penalty of sin, that's right, escape from the consequence of sin, of death and hell, eternal death, but also to free us from, from the power of sin, 
not just our salvation, but our sanctification. As we lean into that fight, it's God who wins the battle. It's his spirit working in us um, as we work it out, as we fight the good fight. So so we need to learn to to leave this world, to see the lies, to put that off, and then to be ready to, to lean into that fight, to battle against it. Finally, then, we see in Abram's example, we need to look to God's blessing. Look to God's blessing. That's where we fix our eyes. Look with me, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him uh, in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Now just an aside, I think it's interesting to note the progression as we come through the book of Genesis. Um, We see five kings fighting against four kings, and now we have Abram in the valley of kings meeting with two other kings. God is beginning, Moses is beginning to, to portray Abram as a king. He's not called that, but he's sure acting like it. He's sure standing amongst the kings. Even without children, God's promise is being fulfilled. He is being built into a nation. What exactly is going on here with these two other kings? The battle's over. Abram has rescued Lot. He's returning home victorious. And the king of Sodom came out to meet him. And you would expect that. That makes sense. And then we meet this other odd fellow, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he kind of shows up out of nowhere which is kind of a big deal. And we know virtually nothing about him, and, and then he's gone. And, and actually, if you look at, at this passage, even just, just removing verses 18 to 20, you, you wouldn't even notice that they were missing, right? If, if Melchizedek was just hit with whiteout, um, you, you wouldn't even see it. Watch this, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, skip 18 to 20. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. It just flows perfectly well without him even there. So why here uh, does does Moses introduce a new character? Bring in this this oddball. Um, The answer to that, um, I think first we need to take a closer look at what happens with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom uh, came out to meet Abram on his return. And and of course he did. Abram is coming back with all his stuff and his people. And he says to Abram, give me the people and and you keep the possessions. And when he realizes this is not some great generous offer from the king of Sodom. 
Um, this is the custom of the day. That's how it worked. Um, this is what was expected. If you were a king and you went out to, to, to rescue um, someone else's stuff, or maybe a few kings, uh, the reward was you'd get your proportionate amount of the loot. The original king would take back his people, and, and whoever helped would share the wealth. And so the king of Sodom is offering Abram uh, exactly what was expected, exactly what was assumed that Abram went out to get. And of course, he would be happy with that. He gets his people back. Um, he's left with more than nothing. But it's shocking then when Abram says, no. No, I'm not even going to take a shoelace from you. Not one piece. He agrees um, to take what his young men have eaten for their sustenance along the way. Um, he has no problem with the other allied kings taking their share. Um, but at the end of verse 23, he says, I will take nothing from the king of Sodom lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abram refuses to receive wealth from the king of Sodom. Sodom was well known for its sinfulness, its debauchery, and Abram will have no confusion about the source of his blessing. He will not be unclear about where his hope lies. This is a, this is a beautiful clarifying moment as we follow Abram here and understanding the promises of God and how he interacts with them. The Lord would bless Abram. And though the Lord would make Abram powerful and wealthy, uh, it was never about the wealth. That wasn't the point. The riches and the greatness, um, they, they weren't the point. If they had been the point, then the source wouldn't have mattered, right? If Abram's goal was to get rich, then he would have taken that from God or he would have taken that from Sodom. I don't care. I just want the wealth. Abram's not seeking after wealth that happens to come through the blessing of God. He is seeking the blessing of God. And in this particular case, that happens to come uh, with greatness. It's the blessing that he's after. And, and, and for that blessing, he, he would not... He will not trade all the wealth of the world. So this offer of great wealth from a wicked king is turned down by righteous Abram. I'll have nothing to do with it. Would you do it? Would you turn it down? What if, what if we could have, though, think about it, the, the, the greatest perfect government, the best government the world had ever seen, however that's defined in your head, totally reformed Perfect health care, school system, tax system, all of that is ideal, perfect. Leaders who are, who are noble and upstanding and trustworthy. The best that a government could offer without the blessing of God. Would you take it? What if, what if you could have your perfect spouse? No hint of conflict Perfect marital bliss, always joy and happiness in the home. Husbands, this is your time to say, I do, honey. Um, everything you could ever want in a spouse, just without the blessing of God, would it be enough? The perfect career move, the job that you desire, the, the perfect complete pay, the, the position of honor and respect that you crave, but not the blessing of God. Would you take it? What if you win the lottery? 
enough money to, to spend the rest of your life on, on perpetual vacation, have every luxury and comfort you ever wanted right there at the touch of a button, the blow of a whistle, everything except the blessing of God. Would you take it? Let's push this right to the end. What if you could have heaven itself? Eternal life in a perfect world. No more suffering, no more hunger, no more death. Everything your heart desires without limit, without end, everything except the blessing of God. Would you go? That's the lie right there of Satan. You can have it all. You can have everything. All of these other things that, 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 that will satisfy your desires, you can have them without the blessing of God. Abram looks at the king of Sodom offering great wealth and he says, no, I won't touch it. Don't want it. And in great contrast to the king of Sodom, we have this strange figure, Melchizedek. Now, there's all kinds of confusion and controversy here, and for good reason. There's great mystery here. Um, someday, I hope and pray, we'll get to the book of Hebrews, and we'll dig into that a little more. I know there's all kinds of things I'm not going to say about Melchizedek this morning. Trust me, I tried to fit it all in. Now, Melchizedek, by his name, means king of righteousness. We're told that he's the king of Salem. Salem uh, is from the same root as shalom. It means peace. Um, but it's like a much fuller, it's not just lack of war, it's peace, it's fullness, it's completeness. It's not clear by the text here by any means, um, but I do think it is quite likely that Salem here is actually Jerusalem. We're quite close to Jerusalem, and you hear the Salem there as well. Melchizedek is called a priest of the Most High God. Um, now, there's some question. Is that Yahweh he's talking about? Yeah, it is. Because verse 22, um, Abram swears by Yahweh, the Most High God. He, lists, he sticks that all together right in the same context. Um, so he's a follower of Yahweh. More than that, he's a priest of Yahweh. And, and on one hand, this is crazy because he's not even part of the, Abram's line and the chosen people or any of that. He's from totally outside. And yet, is it that crazy? I mean, we're not that far from the flood. Surely um, the, the knowledge of the Lord had been passed down in some faithful families. Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, blesses Abram. He brings God's blessing. Verse 19, uh, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, um, who would not take the wealth of Sodom as a free gift, wouldn't touch it, actually gives to Melchizedek uh, 10%, a tenth of all that he has in honor, in, in respect for the blessing of God through Melchizedek. Abram is saying, this is the blessing that I'm after. I won't take that for free, but for this, I would give up everything. That's what his eyes are fixed on. That's why he's able to offer Lot, the, the best of the land. You take your pick, I'll take what's left over, because I'm looking at God's blessing. That's why he's able to turn down the king of Sodom. I don't need your help. I don't need your wealth. I'm after God's blessing. You can't give me that. He knows the promises of this world will not satisfy, and he's looking to the blessing of God. Abram receives this blessing from Melchizedek. 
And yet Melchizedek himself is pointing forward to God's ultimate blessing, the fulfillment of his promises. Melchizedek shows up here in chapter 14, um, and then he disappears. And he's not mentioned again for for hundreds of years uh, until one day King David, who, by the way, is the first Israelite to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. Saul, Saul didn't capture Jerusalem. It wasn't until David. And so David is the first Israelite sitting uh, on Melchizedek's throne. And David is doing his devotions, reading through the Pentateuch, just as we have it. And he comes across Genesis 14, and he's reading this passage, and he's going, what is up here? This is cool. This king of righteousness, the king of peace, These are phrases that that David has already used to speak of Yahweh, to speak of God's promises, the priest of the Most High God. And and Abram, um, who is this great, honored man, he's he's the greatest, most honored figure in, in all of Israelite history, and he honors Melchizedek. He gives Melchizedek a tithe. And so David is figuring this out. Melchizedek is a big deal. Um, He's a type. He's a a living metaphor. He's pointing forward to the Messiah. So David writes Psalm 110. Um, Listen to this, just verses 1 to 4. This is the most um, quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those opening words are huge, right? Jesus actually jumps on that. Um, David, the greatest king of Israel, he says these words, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Again, Israelite culture, um, older is better, right? A father is greater than his son, is greater than his grandson. It's, it's always descending, um, David is greater because David is the father. And yet the Messiah who is supposed to come through his line, who is below him, David calls him Lord. Something's not normal here. It's out of order. The Messiah, this coming rescuer, is not an ordinary descendant of David. Otherwise, David would never call him Lord. Not only that, then verse Four, um, not only is this coming Messiah, he's a, he is a king that is greater than David, and he's a priest. But how can that be? How can he be a, a priest? Kings come from the line of Judah through the line of David, and the Messiah was to be through the line of David, but priests come through an entirely different line. They come through the line of Levi. You can't combine the two. You can't have a king priest in Israel. It doesn't work that way. In fact, Saul who was the first king, was removed from his throne when he tried to do priestly duties. He tried to offer a sacrifice. You can't do both. But this coming Messiah, he's going to be king and priest. But not not priest as a descendant in the the order of Levi, but, but a priest in the order after the descendancy, in a sense, of Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews then picks up on Psalm 110, and there's just way more there than we can unpack 
But Hebrews 7 has this fairly sophisticated argument that this is why Jesus is is not only king and priest, but also that his priesthood is actually superior to the priesthood of Levi. Because his priesthood, like the priesthood of Melchizedek, actually existed long before the priesthood of Levi. Jesus is the king to end all kings, the one who will rule with complete and full authority, and he is the priest who will end all priests. He is the one who can truly, fully, completely restore us to God, who can cleanse us from our sin and bring us to the Lord. So Abram is looking to Melchizedek for the blessing of God. And Melchizedek, in in who he is, is pointing forward to the Messiah, to Christ, the ultimate blessing of God. The world will offer 10,000 ways to make you richer, to satisfy your heart, to give you peace, to give you hope, everything your heart desires apart from the blessing of God. Not one of them will satisfy. Not one of them will deliver on their promises. Jesus. Jesus is the true king of righteousness. That's the government we need. Jesus is the king of peace. In him and him alone, we find the blessing of God. It's the blessing of God. It's his peace. It's his provision. It's his presence for which our hearts truly long. It's the blessing of God. That's what we were created for. That's why we have this longing in us. And it's God's blessing that we will have for an eternity with joy in him. John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We need to look into these stories and understand. We need to leave this world. We need to lean into that fight. And we need to look to the blessing of God found in Jesus Christ and him and him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your glorious word. Thank you that it calls us back again. God, we just confess how quickly we stray, how quickly we're distracted. We put our hope in the things in this world. We rest in them. We trust in them. We're wrecked with anxiety because we don't have them. And you're our hope. Lord, you're the one. You're the one that it will be the fulfillment of all of our desires. You sent your son to rule in perfect righteousness and peace, to be the priest, the perfect priest, who would not only offer a sacrifice, but would himself be the sacrifice that could unite us to you again, that could bring us back into your presence where we could have life. Oh, Father, help us to fix our eyes on Christ, to find our hope and our joy in him, to seek after your blessing and nothing else. Oh God, loosen the roots of our hearts from the lies of this world that that we might abide in Christ, that we might see your blessing and live for that and that alone. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.